Okay, of those three passages, Hebrews, Isaiah, and Job, which one, chronologically speaking, is first? And how do we know? Job, and how do we know? It is the oldest. How do we know it's the oldest? How do we know it's older than Isaiah? All right, the New Testament comes after the Old Testament, so obviously Hebrews is last of the three. How do we know Job is before Isaiah? <laughs> he talks about dinosaurs um, the, and dating. The, the main reason why is um, most people point to is Job doesn't seem to be working under the Mosaic system. All right, and every you know after Moses, all Jews were supposed to be working under the Mosaic system until Christ. All right, and so therefore, I have to mute myself because of our experiment. Hold a second. Actually, I don't know if I can to do our experiment. Did it work? It worked. It worked. Okay, cool. Experiment over. Cool. All right. Trying to improve audio when we're over there, essentially, is what we're playing around with. Where was I? Job. Oh, yeah, Job. So, um, that's right, that's right. So, Job is, is not functioning under the Mosaic system. Therefore, the argument would be Job is pre-Mosaic, right? Um, so let's start with Job, if you would. Uh, we're going to turn to then uh, that chapter, which would be Job 38. Right. Now, the Bible is way more interesting in context than it is as a document from which to pull proof texts. All right. The Bible was not written as a document from which to pull proof texts. The Bible was clearly written in narrative form, generally speaking, for almost the whole thing. And even if you take the things that aren't narrative, like you take uh, Paul's letters, they aren't strictly narrative, but they are to they are they have a flow in general and the reading. The only book I can think of that's not at all that way, or at least the least that way, is the Book of Proverbs. All right. It's and terribly difficult to outline the book of Proverbs because much of it is specifically meant to be here's a bunch of wise Proverbs, many of which are not related. They're just wise Proverbs. Even the book of Psalms, which has 150 chapters, it's not one big narrative, but each Psalm has its own narrative. Um, so really, the Bible was meant to be read that way, which isn't to say ever using it as a place for proof text is wrong, but it is better read when it is not read that way. So let's think about Job 38, 1 through 11. Now the theme, based on what we were reading in 1689, is God's general providence, the control of all creation. Instead of just reading verse 11, which says, And said, Thus far you sh shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Okay, let's, let's think about what is actually trying to say here. Alright? Or does it say, uh, or does it pick the verse, verse 10? Or is it smart and picks both of them? Let's see. Just verse 11? See, that's just got to be confusing. So let's look at the context. If you actually go back to the previous chapter, 
if you, if you have that paragraph at the very end, and this is where Elihu is speaking. Now, as Edward has pointed out before, everyone who speaks in Job is wrong. All right, Even Job himself. This is, this is a, an interesting feature of the book of Job. Uh, the le- at least the last part of this paragraph, though, is correct. Um, and it, if you think of like verse 23 in chapter 37, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Generally speaking, I think that's true. And actually in the next two chapters, um, God is specifically trying to tell Job, I do not regard you that you are wise. I do not regard your wisdom as true. All right? Because, chapter 38, let's see how that plays out. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? So he's talking to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. He doesn't. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Like, you know, measuring line. Or like for squaring it up. You know, that kind of, that's the basic idea. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? I mean, everything that we know in life is all based upon something. All right? And so he's asking Job, okay, the ground you're standing on, what's it based on? All right? Do you know? And uh, verse 7, when the morning stars, and so this is when the bases were sunk, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now we've talked about this verse. Who are the sons of God here? These are, these are spiritual beings that God created, right? Um, God created the angelic host, all right, before he created the world. And so you've got here in Job, when God is laying the foundations of the world, you've got them there with God, rejoicing in what God is doing. So this is before Genesis 1. Or, who shut in the sea with doors and made it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band who, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and, thus, and said, Thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. What's this about? The seashore. The seashore. All right? uh, The seashore is the thing that keeps the, you know, the Mediterranean Sea from coming and swallowing up all the Israelites. Right? That's, at least that's the way it's being viewed. The seashore is placed as a limit to control the seas. And who put that limit there? God himself put that limit there. Make sense? And then he goes on. Uh, and I mean, you could just quote the, all of these chapters for section 5 on providence. Because uh, they all basically are going to be telling you these ideas. So if we go back here to our confession... God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. So how does Job, contextually speaking, help us understand that? Anyone? The unfathomable 
the magnitude of creation, essentially. That's right. Things that you take for granted, like it's yeah, good luck. Can you can you control part of nature? Only inside this building, basically. You're, you're extremely limited, right? On your ability to control nature. And you can somewhat control outside, but it's only somewhat, right? If there's a drought, there's nothing you can do. If there's multiple days of freezing weather, you can do something about it in here, but you can't do anything about it on a large scale out there, right? And so you are very limited in your ability to handle nature. God is not limited, right? Because he actually created all the current limits that exist. And so therefore, God in his providence is not limited by big tasks. All right? He's already proven, because he put everything in place, that he can control them as he wishes. So therefore, when it talks about God as the creator of all things, and infinite power, he can uphold and direct and arrange and govern all creatures and things, because he has that power. Right? Okay, so our next section would be Isaiah... 46. So let's go look at that. There's no land anywhere. No. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. I can't go on, I can't go on cruises. Well, if you ever do. <laughs> I have somebody who gets motion sick and my family. It's a good point. Good idea. Isaiah 46. Let's read the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's not very long. It's only 13 verses. Uh, will somebody please read through verse 7? And then somebody else please read through the end. Anybody? I got it. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from a struggle. Thank you. Remember this, fix it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make the end from the beginning. 
ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. In the east I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned that will I do. Four. Mm-hmm. We'll just go to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are far from righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Okay. So this is a, this is a in and of itself a, a good unit, and you can see progression of thought within this unit. So let's take it all in terms of context. My first question I want to ask is I want to, I'm going to give you a minute or two to read. I want you to read uh, verses one and two, and three and four. All right, those are two units, and tell me what's the relationship between these two. All right, because verse one, verse one and two say something, and verse three and four are specifically meant to say something else in response to one and two. So I'm going to give you a minute or two to read it. Got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, false gods. I don't think they're kings. I do believe they're gods. It's typically the angle of the idol is not a bowing kind of uh, supposed to be like or a venerated kind of you know like this or kind of like. Looking over or down upon mm-hmm. things, so that makes sense. Okay, so what there, there's something maybe it's in my head, I don't know if I can pull it out for me. There's something that specifically makes these two paragraphs and joins them, but also an idea that clearly separates them. All right, what there is something that joins, and one and there is the purpose of joining so that they can contrast. What's the thing that joins them, Chip? Um. Speaking of the one true God, the bears on the, on the shoulders of Israel, and those who worship false gods bore their idols on their shoulders. That's right. There, there's the core of the two things. The idea of bearing, of carrying, all right, connects the two. In the first one, the idols themselves are carried, the idols of the gods. In the second one, it's not that the true God is carried by the Israelites. Right? It's quite the opposite. The true God carries the Israelites. Right? The worshippers carry the false gods. The true God carries his worshippers. Right? And so that's how these two fit together. All right? And we're setting up a contrast about how 
the, the, the pagans, right? In this case, this would be Babylon. Uh, this is about the, the pagans versus the Israelites themselves. So then, now I'm going to give you another minute. I want you to read verses 5 through 7. And now think about, uh, we're in Isaiah 46, by the way. How do verses 5 through 7 relate to the first four? It's not quite right to call these paragraphs because this is poetry, Hebrew poetry, which is why probably in most of your translations it's it's not laid out as as prose but as broken lines. Uh, this section, all right, what would we call not this paragraph but this this section, this stanza maybe? What is its relationship with the first two stanzas? Anyone? Okay, it's a, it's a, this one is critique focused, right? All right, we, you you saw that really in verse verses one and two. All right, you have to carry those idols. I carry Israel. Now he's honing in on the let's talk about the weaknesses of the idols. All right, who would you liken me and make me equal? Right, and that's God's trying to say, are you going to make liken me to these idols? These false gods, all right? Those who lavish gold from the purse. So this speaks then to those who are making the idols. Those who want it, they will take their gold and say, let's make an, make an idol. Hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. All right. Yeah. Uh, just an observation. The fact that they have to have a beast carry the idol or somebody carry the idol uh, is kind of ironic that the person carrying the idol is actually more alive than the idol itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like well, the beast that's carrying the idol is, is, is more, more powerful than the god. Than the idol that you've made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah that, that's interesting. Like, not only is it not helpful, it's actually burdensome. It's a burden. Their God is, yeah. what was the word? It said, they themselves go into captivity bearing these false idols. It seems like it's almost like God's a satirist. Like, do, do you see how, yeah. Yeah, it's foolish, how foolish this all is? Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you remember that specific story? There's the the woman with the with the ark. Remember that one in the. What's that? Was that Gideon? I remember the the story of when the um, the Philistines had the ark, right? And and the yeah and the the ark the ark knocked, knocked over Dagon and he lost his head, right? And so that and really bad, well, really bad hemorrhoids uh, struck the Philistines, and so they sent the ark back to to Israel. That's a fun story too. Yeah, they're 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 ultimately powerless, right? Which means they're, like you mentioned, they're, they are the burden. They are not the thing that helps the burden. They become the burden. Yeah. We used to talk to people about this idea when we were in Asia. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they would say, we know that the statue is not God. Mm-hmm. It's just representing God. It's a channel. And you like what God says, don't try to liken him to anything. Don't make an image like that. Mm-hmm. But in their, in most of their minds, at least what they said, mm-hmm. they knew it wasn't real. They knew they made it, mm-hmm. but it was a conduit. Mm-hmm. Like breathing the fire, lighting the candles and whatnot. Isn't there, aren't they trying to like breathe life into the statues or something of that nature? That cha- mm-hmm. channeling. Their, their so energy. at least in the old, in the uh, ancient Mediterranean context. Um, Based on stuff I, I, I've read, often in those cultures, whenever they'd make an idol, they'd go through like a ceremony to like put the god to, animate it. to, to essentially animate the idol as you know it's not particularly animate, right. but so the the god would be localized within the statue. And of course, of course this is all that, that all this stuff is you know God is mocking that. And so I mean these these Babylonians are very much like a lot of modern people in Asia, right? They are building idols and basically treating them as conduits. I don't think so. I really don't. Um, some essentially would be, but doctrinally speaking, I don't think technically. Yeah. From a practical standpoint, um, those who put an image before God and speak to the image instead of God, then yes, then they, I think, practically speaking, are essentially doing something similar. I think he's thinking about, like, going to be on the news, you know, some, some tree splits in half because of lightning, and then the inside, it looks like a face of Mary. Yeah. Thousands of people on the side. It's silly superstitions. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And I've I, I just been sympathizing with Chuck's point of view. I think that there's a big difference between South Louisiana, Roman Catholics, and 
Roman Catholics in Mexico and the academic Catholics in Dallas who, mm -hmm. you know, go to University of Dallas and study theology. Totally different than yeah. the ones who just pull up on the side of the road and pray before the little Mary image because they want to not have a car wreck. It's Very different worlds, yeah. Totally. So we have an argument building. Let's see where the argument goes. We've had two stanzas, idols versus the God. You know, the God who carries versus the idols that are carried. The next one, it's a mocking of these burdensome statues. All right, I'll give you a minute, and uh, why don't you read verses uh, 8 through 11 now, and try to figure out how this fits in. Bonus points if you can identify the name of the person in verse 11. If my version tells me it's a cheating. That's definitely <laughs> cheating. What's that? Okay. Well, let's see if all of our notes agree. I don't have notes, but... All right, so... Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What is the relationship, then, of this group of verses to what came before? It seems like if he was mocking, now he's calling them almost kind of the... Almost the same language in Job, where you like gird up your mind like a man. Mm -hmm. He's like, don't be a dumb, a dumb beast. You're a human. Think. Yeah. Actually, actually think. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's strengthening his own position. Right. They can do nothing. Me? I tell you what's going to happen before it happens, and it happens. Yep. Yeah, I think it's just a comparison. So we're saying like. These idols are not able to accomplish anything. Now remember everything that I've done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's first two verses, idols. Second two verses, God of Israel. Verses 5 through 7, idols. 8 through really 13, God of Israel. Idols, God, idols, God. All right? And so he's critiquing in the previous paragraph, which we previously read, these idols don't do anything. In contrast, what does God do? He says, before things happen, I'm going to do this. And then he does actually do those things, as opposed to the idols. All right? 
everything from the beginning, I have a plan, all right? And it's, it's not ad hoc, all right? The, the, the vision of God here is not God's trying to figure it out as he goes, all right? It's his counsel and his purpose. He's got a plan, and he figured it out, and he's going to get there because he has the power to do so, unlike the idols, right? Uh, okay, so who is, who's 11? Go ahead. Cyrus. Cyrus. Okay, so yes, yeah, Cyrus. And Cyrus was the king of Persia. And why is that relevant here? The Babylonians were very familiar, right? Um, remember the sequence. Uh, what year did the northern kingdom go into captivity? 722, correct. All right, correct. You all said 722. The southern kingdom, Judah, who this is addressed to, all right, uh, went into, con- went into ca- captivity in 587-86, right? There's debate on which year, but close enough, right? And they went into captivity in Babylon, all right? And so Isaiah 40 and on is about God's deliverance of the people from Babylon. And how did God deliver the people from Babylon? He destroyed it by calling a bird of prey from the east, Cyrus, to come in and ultimately whoop them. All right? Which is very normal for him to do. How did the Assyrians get whooped? The Babylonians. God had the Babylonians whoop the Assyrians. And so now... It's time for the exile to end, so God says, I'm going to call the Persians to whip the Babylonians. And at that point, in fact, the, the exile in Babylon did, did end. So, uh, bonus points for all. <laughs> bonus points for all. Well, and, and a bigger thing, too, is the reason all those people were in Israel in the first place is because of Yes. God warned them, if you won't turn back, I'm going to bring in a country to whoop. Yeah. And they didn't, and he did. All right. He, 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 I don't remember if this is about Cyrus or somebody else. He, in the scriptures, it said, it's not even in his mind right now. I'm going to whistle for him. I think that is actually about, in Isaiah, about Cyrus, if I recall correctly. You know, yeah. once he hears the whistle, then he'll, all of a sudden, it's in his mind now to come. But. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, I mean, just as a general, to, to, to fill out a little bit more what Bill's trying to say, in Deuteronomy, that's when God makes this promise to the Israelites. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you don't obey me, then I will, I will bring bad things to bring you back to obedience. And one of those is, I will bring foreign invaders to, to mess with you, right? To make you realize, wait, I do need to follow God. And, you know, what is, like, the story of judges, except that this playing over and over and over again, right? The Israelites, oh, they sin. So what happens? Well, the Philistines come in and mess with them for a while. And then what happens? A judge rises up, brings the Israelites back to God, and they whoop the enemy. All right, and then they forget. And so it happens again over and over. And so that's what happened ultimately in the kingdom after David and Solomon. They were wicked, and so therefore the Assyrians came. God sent the Assyrians to take out the northern kingdom. Then God sends the Babylonians to take out the southern kingdom. But 
And this is the nature of God's providence toward his people. God's providence toward his people is always ultimately for their good. All right? How in the world would sending the Assyrians and the Babylonians be for their good? It was ultimately to bring them back to right worship. All right? And even here, that's the goal. Why is he calling Cyrus from the east so that they can come out of activity and rightly worship the God of Israel? All right? And where's the right place for them to do that? It's in Israel. They need to essentially go back to the land which God wanted them in. And so it is actually for their good, which is something we focused on last time. Providence of God is always good, ultimately, for the, the people of God. Right? Even and especially when we don't understand what he's doing. All right? Um, yeah. Because I kind of, in regards to like, you know, in our modern sense of, you know, you're a Christian and you have children, that doesn't mean your children are saved type of thing. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's, it's I, I, I'm, I don't know much, but it's like, it, it seems as though, you know, there was a group that, Consensus kind of understood and worshipped and seemed to be saved in not just a spiritual but a material sense as well. While, while their children would a fall would happen, a, a back sliding to a, a sinful uh, state seems like that message is kind of in that as well to some extent or another. I don't know. I'm not following you. Essentially, what I'm getting at is is you, you have a people who are saved, and it, it appears that there's, I would say, the adults, the, the leaders in the community that would help steer folks in the right direction, mm-hmm. ultimately, they would steer the adults in the right direction. And, you know, you can bring your children as much as you want, but it's ultimately their decision. They have to They have to be willing, essentially. I see what you're going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's almost as though yeah. that cycle is consistently to this day of, it's that yeah I do I believe that is that is true yeah for the Israelites they would have cycles partially because they would have generations change over and it's up to every generation um, every generation must have faith and if they don't then God would have to bring the nation ultimately back and say okay you've now drifted again so yeah yeah totally I think it's one of the reasons why they're continually told I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember that? You know, no, it didn't happen to you, but remember it. You know, yeah. did it. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. It didn't happen to you, but mm-hmm. remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Or remember how I brought you back from exile, right? It would be a later part of the story. Always bringing back to remembrance, yeah. Yeah. And he says it right here remember the former things, those of long ago. Yes. But they seem to always forget. They do. It's in human nature to forget, I suppose. Definitely human nature. For sure. And even after the Romans ultimately destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, he always left a remnant. He did. And what is the remnant? You are, right? That's right. Uh, and let's let's talk about that a little bit. And this will, then we'll end. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, please. And so this was uh, the, the third verse it had. And so it, it just references uh, Hebrews 1.3. Right. 
So how does Jesus fit into the providential plan of God? Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we were just reading one, Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So this will be talking about Jesus' life, right? He came and, and he spoke. And even Jesus speaking today or to the, the letter writer here or sermon writer here through the Spirit. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So why would the confession writers point to this verse? Why not just stop with Isaiah and Job? Those were fairly clear. Yeah, that's right. Nothing, I mean, ultimately, all right, nothing changed in some ways, but also some things did drastically change, all right? Uh, Did Jesus exist before the New Testament? Absolutely, all right? But also, as, um, as a consequence of what Jesus did, right, in terms of giving himself as a sacrifice, as purification for sins, he was then exalted and enthroned. All right, in a way that he wasn't exalted and enthroned before, and so in here, all right, it makes clear, and this is something that's that's made very clear in multiple places in the New Testament, which is not quite as clear in the Old. You can sort of read in Proverbs and see how God created the world through wisdom, all right, and we know that from the New Testament that Jesus is the wisdom of God, but that is not quite as clear that the instrumentality was through the Son in the Old Testament. That is not particularly clear. From the New Testament, it is extremely clear. And this is just one of the places that it is made clear. As he says here um, in verse, let's see, in verse, uh, verse 2 at the end, through whom also he created the world. Now, that doesn't necessarily say anything about providence, but verse 3 does, right? He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right. So if you think of, I don't know, I, I like to think of this in terms of physics. Why, are, why, are, why is physics the way that physics is? Because God is upholding the universe by his power. God chooses physics to be the way it is. And by that I mean all things. Not just what we think of as physics, but all things are as they are and work as they are. Because they are all being held together by God. And when we say by God, we mean specifically here, we mean Jesus. Jesus is the one who upholds things, um, upholds the universe by the word of his power, which has serious implications for the doctrine of providence. Because in the Old Testament, it's very clear who is the only, who is the one that can do anything? The God of Israel. Are the other gods? 
All right, to the extent that they exist, and I, you know, there were for certain in the Old Testament angelic fallen beings that people worshipped, and they existed. Could they create the world? No. Were they all powerful? No. All right, the God of Israel was the only one who could do these things. Now in the New Testament, it's the Son. All right, who is the one actively doing this? It is the Son who is actively holding all of the universe together at all times. Therefore, from a, from a providential standpoint, all right, it is Christ who is holding it all together and accomplishing all these things providentially. Yeah? Um, was it did Moses, was, uh, was it Sinai? Was that, was that the, when I read the being the brightness of his glory and express mm-hmm. image of his person, wasn't that the image shown? Was that Moses? I forget. It was the, someone was presented mm-hmm. that image, and what? Because you can't can't see God's full image because you die. Mm-hmm. So we tamped it down to the Jesus. You know, to, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that's referencing that. Yeah, it's actually really common for people to talk about. Um, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, right. right, in the Old Testament, like when the angel of the Lord comes and, and visits Abraham, okay. right? That would be an instance. Uh, potentially on Mount Sinai could be one of those instances as well. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, that, 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 would be, that would be a thing, right? But definitely the idea, right? Moses wanted to see him, and God said, if I did that, you would die. Right. But I'll show you some, right? Well, it's it's similar, you know, with Jesus. No one's seen God ever, but he's made himself known through Jesus. Yeah. In fact, you know, he's the radiance of God's glory. Yep. So have we seen God? Well, yes and no. Right. And and for these, right, the, the, the people in the Roman Empire that this was written for, all right? How many of these people do you think had seen the emperor? All right. Well, almost all of them, yet almost none of them. All right. They didn't have TV. It's on the coins. All right. It's on the coins, right? Exactly. That they would put their picture on the coins so that when you were handling money, who, do, who does this belong to? Right. Well, it belongs to Augustus. All right. Some one of the Caesars, whichever one happened to be alive at the time. All right. That's who the money belong to. Their exact imprint. Maybe not exact, but their approximate imprint on those coins, right? Uh, same way. If you're seeing Jesus, do you see exactly the Father? No. Do you see when you're... But, but, but do you see the Father when you're seeing? Yeah. You do. Father and the Son are distinct. We're Trinitarian, and that is one thing we believe. The Father and the Son are distinct. But when you see the Son, as Jesus said... We want to see the Father. What, you, what did Jesus say? You've been with me all this time, Philip. Right. Look at me. All right. You, if you see me, you'll see the Father. Um, you want to hear God? Listen to me. I'm saying the things of the Father. That's very much a part of Jesus' ministry. And so from a providential standpoint, Christ plays a huge part of this, even if you don't necessarily see that very clearly in the Old Testament. All right. So think about this, that this week as you experience bad things and good things. Alright? Bad things and good things. Bad things, if you are a child of God, God will ultimately in some way, even if you do not understand it, will use it for your good. If you experience something good, 
then it is from God. All right? It is under the providential hand of God the Father through God the Son, who upholds all things. All right? That is basically keeping this world together. And we know, based on Isaiah, that God has a plan. All right? God has a plan. He knew it, and he's working it through to the very end. That means we have a wise, ultimately successful, providential Father in Heaven. Okay. Uh, let's dismiss so we can have a, a little bit of break before, before we go next door. Okay. Um, Jonathan Simpson, will you please pray for us?